This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On December 23rd, 1972, a massive earthquake ripped through the capital city of Nicaragua, leaving destruction in its wake with an estimated 10,000 deaths and 80% of the buildings left to mere rubble. Although nowhere is serious, there was another heart-wrenching moment later this day for this week's guests and many fans across Raider Nation. It was about 3,500 miles northeast from the epicenter of this earthquake, in a place called Three Rivers Stadium. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step up the DeLorean, the date is January 23rd, 1556, and we are in Shenxi, China. Now, we have made a grave mistake because we are in the middle of what is estimated to be an earthquake with a magnitude of 8 on the Richter scale. Well, didn't have the Richter scale back then, but it's still determined throughout history that that's how big of an earthquake this was. The reason why this one is so big of a deal because it is by far and away considered the most devastating as far as human life earthquake of all time. Some reports say it was thought to have killed 830,000 people in less than 20 seconds. But although that's not a lot of time, that's all it took to drastically change the landscape of East Asia back in the 16th century. But let's put this into perspective. And again, I'm not trying to be insensitive at all, but a play occurred on the same day as a massive earthquake ripping through the capital city of Nicaragua, like we said in the intro, with an estimated death toll of 10,000 people. Upwards of twice that were injured and set up to be 400,000 left homeless. This play, football again, not to be insensitive, nothing the same. It occurred in Three Rivers Stadium on December 23rd. 1972. This is about 3,500 miles northeast of that earthquake early that morning in the capital city of Nicaragua. But let's get you there. Taking that DeLorean to December 23rd, 1972. Everything seemed calm for the Oakland Raiders. It was the 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff game. 22 short seconds were left on the clock. It's 4th and 10. They're on the wrong side of the 50-yard line for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Trailing the Raiders 7-6, Terry Bradshaw walks to the line of scrimmage. Art Rooney was walking to the elevator with plans of heading to the locker room to console his team after this heart-wrenching loss. Then, just like it had to be for the victims of the 1556 earthquake, 20 short seconds turned into the longest 20 seconds in their lives for all of Raider Nation including its newest member, this week's guest, Rich Schmelter. This play, of course, would ultimately be voted as the greatest play in NFL history for the 100th year celebration that they had. (laughs) However, Raider Nation lost its soul and lost its mind, I'm sure, at the same time, maybe helping the whole persona. But again, gaining another outlaw that day in the form of this week's guest. Well, 
We'll go ahead and get into that play and so much more in this episode, but first, here's a quick bio for this week's guest. Richard J. Schmelter is a writer-researcher specializing in sports history, American crime during the Prohibition era, and Hollywood history. He is a member of the International Association for Crime Writers, the American Crime Writers League, and the Professional Football Researchers Association. He has published numerous books and helped with many more around sports history, including some crime history. And he has so much more in the works. We'll get into his books and the story, but first, I have to let you know about a special giveaway from Rich. He's going to autograph and send a copy of his L.A. Dodgers Encyclopedia, which covers the Dodgers' long and proud tradition in Los Angeles from their arrival in 1958 through the 2016 season. And if you want to enter this contest, all you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. Again, get your entry today by heading over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest contest. Even if it runs after this contest, there's probably something else over there for you on the page. So go ahead and check it out. But again, I'm sure you probably don't want to hear me spitting off at the mouth. You want to hear it from our guest. So let's dive right into it and get to the conversation with Rich Schmelter. I ran a Google Maps for the where the current Cleveland Browns stadium is to the old like the Oakland Coliseum. I understand they moved to Vegas and everything. Where the but where the Raiders used to play to Cleveland, we're talking nearly 40 hours to like drive there in a car, probably more if you got to factor in, you know, everything else, or seven hours in a flight, and that's only if it's a one way. So we're creeping up on three thousand miles. Why would you pick to be a Raiders fan when the dog pound is right in your backyard? I first fell in love with the Raiders because I was watching the 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff game. Uh, that was the Immaculate Reception game, which unfortunately the Raiders lost technically. But I, that, that's still a major debate to this day. But Ken Stabler was the quarterback for the Raiders, and he ran for a 30-yard touchdown that put them up seven to six before Franco Harris's Immaculate Reception, and. The whole thing about all that, such a such a debate because the ball could not hit a teammate and then another teammate could touch it at that time. It had to hit a defender before, you know, somebody like, like Franco Harris could have picked that ball up. They claimed that it hit Jack Tatum, but if you watch the film, it did not hit Jack Tatum. Tatum laid Frenchie Fuqua out. The ball came off of him. And there's even some of the people that are in that game for the Steelers that are even still kind of like, well, I'm not going to say nothing. Maybe a deathbed confession someday. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting that, okay, I did not expect you to say the, okay, the Immaculate Reception game. When normally if people say the Immaculate Reception game, they're saying that's when I became a Steelers fan or something like that. Why no. did how, you, Kenny Stabler, why'd you grasp onto the Raiders then? He had a little smiley face sticker on his helmet. You know, remember that little smiley face? And he had that on and he had that long hair and he just looked so cool and calm. And the more I started to know about him and then uh, it, it just seemed like they got ripped off on that game. And all of a sudden I just fell totally in, totally in love with the Raiders because I thought this is a team against the world right now. And I didn't know the history of the Raiders, you know, the whole us against them and everything at that stage. I just knew that this Ken Stabler was just a cool, just a cool looking quarterback. And I just fell fell head over heels in love with the Raiders because of Snake. And I also had a chance to meet him one time. And it, he was just as great as, as he was, as what I thought he would be. So it, it was just a complete, complete cycle of perfection. 
<laughs> and we're going to get into that later, the psycho part of it, maybe the perfection too, but the whole psycho and, you know, outlaw image and everything. But it gets me wondering, okay, you picked this guy, like you said, it's us against the world type of thing. And maybe you didn't even realize it. Like, where were you at in your life that made you say that that's the team I want versus like the Steelers who had this immaculate reception as it ended up being called? I just, I, I was 13 at the time. And I hate to date myself, but I always like to say I wasn't born at the time. (laughs) Those that know me would know I'm lying right away. I just, um, they just seemed, I I don't know. I just seemed like they got, it seemed like they got ripped off in that game. And it just, there's just something about, they had cool colors. Yeah. I still think they have the best uniforms even now in NFL, in, in the NFL. And it was just, just, I just, gravitated toward him because of that. Maybe it was the underdog uh, image. You know, you always kind of root for an underdog. And even though the Steelers were considered an underdog at that time, but it's just something about that game, something about Stabler's Stabler's calmness and just the the way he carried himself on that field. It was all about snake, (laughs) all about snake with the Raiders. No, that's cool. I mean, I'm going to date myself too, but everyone on the show knows this. I was not around during this game, so I didn't, I couldn't say that I realized that snake was what you're saying of this cool, calm, collected, but yet this, I guess you could say rebel, whatever it is, you know, these outlaw type of guys, it's almost like opposite for the Patriots nowadays. Granted. Okay. We'll go back five years The Patriots nowadays. Everybody wants to hate him versus the underdogs versus the world. And uh, it's just kind of interesting thinking. I'm trying to think of a team that for me, I would have grasped onto, um, Geez, I don't know the Lions, obviously, but that's for different reasons. So I n- I haven't had that experience like how you have, where it's not my hometown team, and I'm going to grasp onto them because of a specific moment. For me, it would have been the Ravens, I suppose, because when going back to about the same age as you were when you picked up on the Raiders in '72, uh-huh. I was there when Ray Lewis was drafted, and I was I was a little bit younger than which would have been when he was drafted, but then when they became that dominant 2000, you know, when they won the the Super Bowl that one year with the, the greatest defense or whatever of organized chaos. That was when I was getting into high school football and I was linebacker and all that kind of thing. So I had a different perspective of why I picked another team, but still going back to yours, it was like a player, I think is where I personified around it. So it's kind of cool, but in an interesting way, I mean, going back to Ken Stabler and you talked about like their I don't know, outlaw image. Let's go go ahead with that. I mean, when, when was this Raiders outlaw image established? I, I always I always say that Raiders history is divided into two things. B.A. before L. and A.A. after L. <laughs> before L. Davis came from 60 to 62, the Raiders only won nine games in all those years. L. Davis came around, came in in 1963. They won 10 games. He had this this image. He changed he changed the uniforms. He was always a big fan of the the army, the powerful army teams at that time in the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he wanted power, wanted speed. And you know the Dodgers had the speed in baseball. Army had the power, and he just wanted to combine that. And it's like we're not going to take what the defense gives us. We're just going to take what we want. And he he established that vertical passing. He got the strong arm quarterbacks, fast receivers massive mountain linemen and just these outlaws, the, 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 these guys that were just cast off from other teams and they were willing to, to, to do whatever it took to, to win, to reestablish themselves. And it just, it just clicked. And then all of a sudden, you know, they came out with the black uniforms and they, 
they maybe stretched the rules a little bit, you know, where cheating was highly encouraged, <laughs> you know, and it, it was just that way. And it was just, just win, baby. Long before Al Davis said that after Super Bowl 18, that was established in 63. He just didn't say it at that time. It was just that that was like the culture. It was still that just win baby culture. And uh, you mentioned something right there. Take what we want. We, you know, the Raiders, I guess it's kind of like it makes sense with the Raiders and take what we want. I, I'm curious. Do you know where they decided to come up with that nickname, the Raiders? The Raiders had they actually they started off as the Seniors. Hmm. And that, that was the winning bid in 1960. They they st- they came up with the with the name. Uh, it was called the Oakland Seniors. And then just for some odd reason, they, they came up that I really can't say. I don't really know specifically why they, how they came up with the Raiders. I'm sure that it's out there somewhere. I haven't been able to find it, but I, I just couldn't picture them being called the Oakland Seniors, you know, because they, they had a strong Mexican population there and they wanted to bolster that. They wanted to, you know, enhance that, you know, th- through the team. But it just didn't seem to fly. But they still gave the lady who won it. They still gave her a, a check for some money. <laughs> Oh, okay. So one of those things where they they uh, put it out to the the population and said, "Hey, give us an idea." Right. The, and Oakland Tribune, the Oakland Tribune did that. The Oakland Tribune did that, and they just had a you know a contest, and that was a bid. Uh, I, I don't know if it was more than one person or you know it was multiple, but that's what they came up with at first. And it only lasted, I believe, a couple weeks, and then they were like, "No, no, we can't do this." And they first came out; they were in gold and black uniforms. And uh, the uniforms were not not pretty at all, and you know. And then, of course, the Raiderettes. They had the Ra- uh, they started off with a lady named Di- a young girl named Diane Sheldon that was a baton twirler. That was the first so called Raiderette. And so, you know, you you kind of piece all this together, and um, it, it was it was interesting, but they weren't that good. <laughs> Actually, they were abysmal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's uh, interesting to see how things change. And like you said, that was like, I didn't even realize that they were gray and, or I mean, sorry, gold and black uniforms at the beginning. How many seasons did they play like that for? Three years, uh, 60 through 62, three seasons. And then when Al Davis came in, he changed to that, to the uniforms that we know. The helmets were a little, you know, through the years, they modified the, modified the, the shield and all, but it was basically the same, basically the same look. Okay, well, so you said it after Super Bowl 18, one of the questions I did want to ask you, we're going to go forward, then we're going to come back. When Fine he said me. just, <laughs> what did just win baby mean to you, as in you, the fan of that team? It just meant at all costs, whatever it took, just win baby. And, you know, they had these rules. When I know John Madden was not the coach at that time. Coach Flores, thankfully, is finally in the Hall of Fame, well-deserved. But when when John Madden was there, he, you know, he just had a few rules, you know, show up for meetings and just play like hell on sun, on Sunday. And it wasn't it wasn't a lack of discipline. Those guys knew what they had to do, but it was just at all costs. Do whatever you had to do to, to win. And again, a lot of these guys were cast offs. They felt like they were reborn in with the Raiders and they would do anything that they could. And they loved Al Davis. They loved John Madden, Tom Flores. So they just played, played, and there was very, very much unit, a lot of unity on that team. And it was totally different than anything that, that any, I believe any other team had. So just win baby was just a simple way throughout all those years. I say from 63 to 83 were, were those years where they were the winningest team and not only professional football, but all of professional sports with a winning percentage. 
And it just summed it up perfectly. Just win, baby. Just do whatever you have to do to do it. And they achieved it. All the division titles, three Super Bowls. And and luckily, the Hall of Fame is starting to notice. (laughs) The Hall of Fame is starting to grow with some more Raiders, which I'm very happy about. Yeah, I mean, nowadays, I guess the thing I can compare it to is the do your job for uh, Bill Belichick, even though it means something different, of course. But at the end of the day, it's do your job to win and just win, baby. And and you mentioned cast-offs, and there were like a lot of cast-offs from other teams. And I guess, how did they end up – how did they get to that point where they were reestablishing themselves with the Raiders and so many of them? Al Davis had a great – he had a great football mind, and he – just would see people and he would see beyond the problem. So if somebody was a problem, he would see beyond that. And like John Matuzek is a perfect example. Tuz is again, one of my favorite players. I mean, you talk about the ultimate Raider outlaw, John Matuzek was it. And he had some problems with the other teams he was at. He was a big, huge defensive lineman. He came to the Raiders and granted he had, you know, the breakfast of champions were, was vodka and Valium for him. You know, he, you know, and he would eat, I, I believe he would just eat, um, he liked cheese whiz on, I believe it was, um, uh, I forgot what it, uh, like, like an English muffin type thing. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm right on that, but it, it, he, that's all he ate, you know I mean? And, and it, but he was, he was just a, uh, a fierce competitor, knew he had a second chance, knew Al Davis gave it to him and he just played his butt off for him. And that's just a, and another example of a lot of these guys, Ted Hendricks was, he wasn't, Ted Hendricks wasn't really cast off, but he kind of, after winning a Super Bowl with Baltimore or the Baltimore Colts at that time, he wound up going to Green Bay for one year and then he came to the Raiders and they really didn't know what to do with him, basically. And then he wound up establishing him, basically reinventing himself as well. It was just, um, just an incredible group of guys like that that just were willing to give it all for Al Davis and for John Madden. And again, Tom Flores also. Yeah, it's kind of like companies and how cultures really can define how employees will succeed and how they can flourish under like the the top of the head will give this direction as far as, you know, like you said, just win, baby. Or maybe it's, uh, I don't know, our our motto at the company I work for is 100% say-do ratio every day. That's one of the things. And while we're customers always, always, it's like these different things that if you follow that culture, some people are just not fit out to do it for. And I'm I'm imagining that there were some guys that maybe got drafted to Raider country that were like, ooh, this is not my gig kind of thing. I mean, do you remember any of them that just kind of really floundered out? Um, actually, no, I really don't. They the, the Raiders always kept their cuts very, very private. They didn't. It was always, again, us against them. So some guys would come in and their names are basically lost to history. I wouldn't I can't really think off the top of my head of anybody that's really, really stood out that were with the Raiders and then they left the Raiders, you know, and, and became stars. It was usually the other way around. Hmm. Again, going back to that culture of the the company, the engine of the, the Raiders that were. And I mean, for me, I, I hate to say it, but I got to compare them to the Patriots nowadays because of <laughs> that's what, it, what, you know, well, that's, that's what I knew because they do the same thing. They have the, they've had so many outcasts that have come to their organization from other teams and Bill Belichick has found a way to say, you do your job, here's your, your expectations and boom. And then all of a sudden you win another friggin' Super Bowl and everything like that. So I think, I think, it, I think the difference is, you know, that they're, they're, they're the same, but different, so to say, because the Raiders had had more of a laxed 
and when I say laxed, they 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 were they 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 were driven, very very driven. But they just had you know they they were treated like like men, not like you know uh, freshmen on a fr- freshmen in a college team. They were they were treated like men. Just, hey, do what you want to do, but just show up, show up, do your job, just win, baby. And they didn't have they didn't have a dress code. They they looked like uh, Ahmad Rashad was saying something one time when they were playing the uh, I believe he was with the Minnesota Vikings at that time, and he said you saw these guys coming off of the bus to play for the game. He goes they look like they came out of like Rawway State Prison. You know these guys came out with you know these wild outfits and just you know all black sweaters, you know chains and leather jackets, and they were just. Ready? They look like they were ready for a for a rumble as opposed to a football game. And basically, the football game was a rumble to them. Yeah, totally opposite than the Lombardi the Lombardi Packers. <laughs> right. Yes, but I mean Vince Lombardi. I I, I Vince Lombardi is, is one of my one of he's like snake to me. You know, what I mean, uh, uh, Vince Lombardi was. Uh, I, I would have loved to have been at a training camp with him. Just, just the stories, just the stories, and. Event, we're probably going to go back to that, but um, if we if we have a chance to go back into history, like you like you said that we will, uh, I'll bring up Vince Lombardi again. <laughs> okay, so remind me then. Uh, maybe I'll even put a note, Vince Lombardi. Somehow we got to talk about that. I mean, obviously, uh, an amazing coach. That it's it, there's not a person that I think knows about the NFL that doesn't know the name Lombardi or knows more has heard Lombardi and not even necessarily NFL. Um, in Speaking of knowing names, I mean, we kind of doubled into it a little bit, but if you had to pick, we'll call it your Mount Rushmore, even if you want to cheat and throw a couple of Mount Rushmores in there, who are some of I'm the gonna top? I'm going to cheat, by the way. Cheating is highly That's encouraged, fine. remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially because you're, yeah, you're the outlaws, the Raiders. So, in fact, I right. would be uh, remiss if you did not do that. So, your top players in Raiders history that best exemplified that outlaw persona. Okay, I'm going Ben Davidson. He was kind of the original of the twelve angry or the eleven angry men that they had on that defense in 1967. That did lose to Vince Lombardi's Packers in the Super Bowl, but that's okay because it was Vince Lombardi. And then I'd have to go, definitely Lyle Alzado. Even though Lyle just played a few years there, I mean Lyle was meant to be a Raider, and I loved a line that he said where he 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 was like if. King Kong and I went into an alley fight together. One of us would come out. It wouldn't be the damn ape. <laughs> you know, so it was just, I mean, that that's just, I mean, Lyle Azedo is just a, you know, just a, a power keg waiting to, waiting to explode. And of course, John Matuzak. I mean, the twos was, he was a wild man, whether it was on the field or off, you know, he, he just established himself, established himself as that Raider bad boy image. So I would say those three would be Mount Rushmore of, as far as bad boys. I might be leaving somebody out and I apologize. That, oh, I, okay. Uh, I'm going to throw one more in Bob Brown, the big offensive tackle where he was, he was a huge, he was a huge gun collector. He loved guns. And when he first came out on that football field, they had wooden goalposts on the, on the uh, practice field. He just went up over there, got into his stance and hit it with everything he had and he shattered that goalpost. He cracked the wood on there. He was a big, avid weightlifter, big, powerful guy. So I would say you'd have to put him on that Mount Rushmore because we're going to have four on there now. Now, here's come, here's where the cheating comes, Arnie. <laughs> when you talk about another Mount Rushmore, you have to say Al Davis, Tom Flores, and John Madden. Okay, that, that that's that's my other one. 
And I'm going to throw even Al Locasal in there. He was the uh, like right-hand man to Al Davis. He ran everything behind the scenes. So I'm going to have to throw him. That's maybe a name that a lot of people don't know, but they should. I really think he um, did a fantastic job behind the scenes. And then we're going to have one more. <laughs> Again, I'm going to unfortunately slight some people. And I don't mean to because I could just go on all night about the Raider greats and we don't want to do that. You have to put Marcus Allen right smack in the middle. We're going to go, this, you know, Marcus Allen, Snake Stabler. I would say Fred Belitnikoff would have to be on there. And my mind is just racing now. Uh, Howie Long. Again, I want more Mount Rushmore's, but we're not going to do that. We'll just stop at three right now. How's that sound? Right. Yeah. I mean, we could sit there, like, like you said, probably all night because there's so many names and even the Hall of Fame starting to recognize, like you said, more and more. Um, but one reason why they are being recognized in Hall of Fames and all these types of things is you mentioned earlier the Super Bowl Lombardi. But let's go back to the Super Bowls, the Raiders Super Bowls and describe whichever one you want in order of how you want. And the meanings that they each had to you, like they're separate meanings for each Super Bowl. 76 was I was a, I just started my senior year in high school and I watched the Raiders from when I was 13 years old until that time. So you're talking four years and they came close and they would lose. They, you know, they lost to Miami in the AFC championship game the, the year after the Immaculate Reception. And then they lost to Pittsburgh twice in the AFC championship game. Now they lost to teams that were not slouches, but and a lot of people felt that that was the Super Bowl because when those other teams got into the Super Bowl, they totally demolished the opposition. But in 76, when that team went 13-1, and one, and they only lost to the Patriots that one year in the, in the, uh, in the uh, regular season, but they just steamrolled. And they steamrolled through the year. And, you know, they, they barely got by New England in that, that division championship, in the division game. And uh, Snake scored the winning touchdown in that game. But then the week after that, they totally destroyed Pittsburgh to get to the Super Bowl. And I knew in my heart that once they destroyed Pittsburgh in that AFC championship game, that they were going to roll in that Super Bowl. And they did. And I'm not ashamed to say it. Tears filled, tears filled my eyes when Ken Stabler turned to the camera and he had that showed the number one sign with his hand. And even to this day, if I look at that NFL highlight and I see that, tears get in my eyes. <laughs> And people that I work with, if when they if when they when and if they listen to this, they will they will start nodding their head and laughing because they know exactly. Sometimes they actually showed it to me to watch me get tear up. But that 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 was the most special one to me. Old man Willie, when he intercepted that pass and returned it seventy five yards for a touchdown, he goes, he could go all the way. Old man Willie, it just I, I'm no I don't want to start slobbering over because I'm going to start I'm going to start getting a little misty eyed with that. But that team was was unbelievable. And then, of course, 1980, they came out of nowhere. They came out of nowhere. They were the wild card team, and they just beat everybody, everybody to get there. Of course, they beat Cleveland in the AFC uh, divisional game when uh, Mike Davis recently passed. He intercepted a pass in the end zone with a red-right 88 call. And I enjoy hassling Browns fans on that. And, again, those that know me <laughs> know how I feel about that. But um, – and then, I mean, you know, they beat the Chargers in the AFC Championship game, which they were an offensive juggernaut. And then they, they totally dismantled Philadelphia in the Super Bowl. They came out of absolutely nowhere with a quarterback, Jim Plunkett, who was a, was a reclamation project himself. I mean, he was just, uh, 
you know, on the scrap heap. And he came in when Dan Pastorini broke his leg and he just did a fantastic job for them. Wound up winning the Super Bowl MVP. And then in 83, when they had Marcus Allen, they drafted Marcus Allen the year before that. And Jack Squirek, when Jack Squirek came up with that interception, you know, to really totally turn the game around. And he, he was, he went in there to just try to cover Joe Washington and he intercepted the pass, scored, that broke their backs. So you had these two guys that were draft picks the year before that joined these these guys, that a few of the guys that were there before that, like Cliff Branch and Ted Hendricks and uh, Ray Guy, uh, Henry Lawrence, uh, Dave Dalby. And, and I apologize if I'm leaving anybody else out, but they still had that core of men that were, you know, either two-time champs before that or, you know, when they won it in 1980. So... That, that was just an incredible performance, too. They came out and they, they, they didn't come out of it nowhere. I mean, they wound up going 12-4, and four, did well in the playoffs. You know, they, they really didn't. They, they, they rolled past Pittsburgh and rolled past Cincinnati. I'm sorry, uh, Seattle, who was in the AFC at that time. But when they faced Washington in that Super Bowl, I mean, Washington was the defending Super Bowl champs. They missed out on an undefeated season by just a mere few points. And they were they were just supposed to be unstoppable. And the Raiders came in and just totally dismantled them. So uh, I love them all equally, but differently, kind of like you do your children, you know? <laughs> it's interesting, though, that you mentioned the most special one was almost like a four-year redemption for your game that you became fell in love with the Raiders. Yes, yes. Again, Snake, again, turning, going, not doing the number one sign gets me every time. <laughs> if you ever <laughs> yeah, see cool. that, hopefully you'll make it. <laughs> I'll have to now moving forward. Yes. I'll be thinking of it. Yeah. I mean, before it was just that it didn't mean as much to me other than, Hey, that's another game from the olden times. And uh, I appreciate that stuff a lot more now than I would have ever before after starting this podcast. I mean, I've always heard of the, the bad boy image of the Raiders and things like that, but yeah, I didn't really know much about that. Or, I mean, I knew John Madden, but I mean, I'm your typical, uh, I'm at the beginning of the millennial stage and I knew John Madden because of Madden football. You know, I didn't really realize how much of his career he had and that kind of thing, but uh, going back again. So like I said, the four year redemption of we're, we're taking out the guys who took us out with that catch that should not have been the catch and everything that rivalry, the seventies, the Raiders Steelers. I mean, where do you rank that amongst all the rivalries in the history of the NFL? There's a great book that came out called Hell with the Lid Blown Off. I, I, I believe that's what it's called. And it best exemplifies that. I would say, you know, you have you have many rivals, whether it's Cleveland and Pittsburgh, Baltimore and Pittsburgh, uh, the Giants in Washington. I mean, you can go on and on with Dallas and, and Washington. Dallas about against everybody, basically. But you have the, the, the Raiders, the Raiders and the, the Steelers in the 70s. That was a true absolute hatred for each other. And it all started from, and they played a couple times before that when uh, the, the league merged, when, when the AFL and the NFL merged, they played a couple games before that, but nothing, nothing. It was just a basic game until the immaculate reception game. Then the hatred started and it just brewed and brewed and brewed and brewed. And they really did not like each other. And uh, of course, George Atkinson had his bouts with uh, Lynn Swan you know, and, and uh, that whole Soul Patrol defensive backfield for the Raiders. We, we had uh, Tatum, Atkinson, Skip Thomas, and, of course, Willie Brown. They were absolutely incredible, and they just tormented, just punished punished 
anybody wearing a Steelers uniform or they punished anybody, but especially the Steelers, they always got up for a little bit more, but it was just a, a bitter, bitter rivalry. And I, I would, I would not have wanted to play in that. And it might sound like a cop out, but I was be afraid of serious bodily harm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, that's uh, definitely a different time and era and things like that. And, uh, Speaking of that era, uh, we're going to get into the whole DeLorean portion of this question here in a little bit. But I re- I saw, I didn't get to see this this uh, film, but the 30 for 30 about Al Davis versus the NFL. Did you see that by chance? Yes, I did. Yes. All right. I mean, is that something that in a nutshell really just kind of exemplifies what we just talked about? Yes. Uh, he, again, you know, take what we want. He wanted to move to Los Angeles. You know, he had a good mark. He, he, he was a fantastic market, you know, millions and pound millions of people there. And they were ready for, for football at the Coliseum again, after the Rams moved out, Al Davis saw that he saw he was having problems in Oakland. He wasn't getting what he wanted there. And he did, he did coach in Los Angeles with the chargers when the Chargers were in Los Angeles for the one year in 1960. And he allegedly liked, loved that city of Los Angeles. Again, I can't speak for the man, but so, so I've been told that he really, you know, liked the city of Los Angeles and just saying we're moving to Los Angeles. And Pete Roselle said, you know, well, Al, we'll bring it up at a meeting. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm moving to Los Angeles. And of course, there were a lot of court battles and all, but Al Davis won. And while that was going on, they won, they came out of nowhere to win that Super Bowl in 1980. So here, Pete Roselle has to present the trophy to the man who's really, really a thorn in his side. And he's going to be moving to, to Los Angeles. This was in 1980. They didn't move till 82, but it was already in the works. And then if, if that, that's interesting too, if you get to ever see that, where, where you, you just observe, if you saw that special, then you know they had, they, they had some things planned. If Al Davis was going to do something special, or I, I don't know what it was um, that they were going to, the Raiders were going to react on Pete Rozelle, but Al Davis chose not to go that route. He just was gracious, took the trophy, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, the year after they move, they win it again. So Pete Rozelle, if he had any hair left at that time, it had to be falling out in droves, in droves. And Al Davis just smiled, uh, you know, just smiled as wide as possible. Yeah, that's something I definitely got to see that. I mean, going back again to my, you know, we've discussed uh, when I came to this planet, but of owners, he had to be the one, I guess maybe Jerry Jones too, because, you know, you always see him on Thanksgiving when I was growing up, but Al Davis was the guy that, and granted he had a wholly diff- totally different, like coming up into the league, obviously, but Al Davis was the guy that like, everybody knew who that owner was, you know, like even if I wasn't just, like a casual fan at the time. Right. Yeah. He was, he was an enigma. I mean, he was, you know, he, you could, you can call him whatever you wanted to call him, whether it was good or bad. I like to call him a maverick uh, and a winner. His, his legacy will never, ever, ever die. And I'm very happy about that because I think he was, he gave so many people second chances. He knew everybody by name. He, no matter what, who you were on that team, he knew exactly, you know, the, their names. He made you, you know, again, you had a play for him and he was cunning. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about it, but, but to, to be in a position like that, what company, what, what corporate leader isn't cunning, you know? And, but, but again, if you gave him your all, and he saw that, that 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 you had the talent, but maybe you just 
you just didn't uh, fit in somewhere else and you had some problems, it's like, hey, look, you're going to get a second chance. And when somebody gives you that second chance, you'll play like hell for that person. And that's exactly what people did. And that that was his whole his whole makeup. Like I said, I love to call him a maverick. You know, I mean, I don't know if he would have liked the name, the word outlaw, but I'm sure he would have, you know, like an old West gunslinger type, type attitude, you know, walking into a bar, you know, <laughs> just, you know, taking everybody on, of course, dressed in black. But um, yeah, I, I would definitely, he was a, a phenomenal owner. I, I would say one of the, one of the tops of all time. Again, too much debate. People, people, other people you're going to interview and you have interviewed probably would have a different approach. To, to, to their special person. But Al Davis to me was the ultimate owner. That's funny because where we're going to take the DeLorean first is going to be to a person who may be called cunning, someone who may be called an enigma. And some people loved him and most people hated him. He was not a corporation necessarily. However, he was cutthroat and a raider in himself. So let's take this DeLorean. I think there's a button somewhere here. Boom. So we got it flashing up too. So there's your DeLorean for you. You're going to ride shotgun with me maybe i'll give you the keys you're going to go back to a university of northwestern game in 1930 to share a story about two gentlemen and one of them it comes from your book what is that story right i wrote a book uh 12 years ago called chicago assassin and it was about the top trigger man for al capone Uh, his name was machine gun jack mcgurn and it was just a great name and almost like snake you know, the, the name, when I when I saw the name, I always wanted to write a book on true crime. And I was always enamored with the Prohibition era. So what better place to gravitate toward is Chicago during Prohibition. And I saw in a book, there's a name, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. And I just thought, okay, that's got to be the coolest name. That, of course, wasn't his real name, but his real name was Vincent Gabardi. But he changed it because he became a professional boxer. And at that time, Italians were kind of not not really accepted into the boxing, but the Irish were. So he changed his name to Battling Jack McGurn, which eventually became Machine Gun Jack McGurn, which is funny because he never really used a machine gun. He used pistols, you know, but it sounded better. The paper sat sounded better with Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Well, after after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Al Capone, you know, after, from 1924 to 1929, Chicago was just a, a battleground and Al Capone was annihilating all of his opposition. Finally, with the St. Valentine's Day massacre, he wiped out the one gang, Bugs Moran gang, the Northsiders, that, you know, totally gave him absolute reign over Chicago. But sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for, because it does come true. He had that. But of course, the public opinion, when they saw this slaughter in this garage, turned against Al Capone, where before that, these guys were looked at as, you know, lovable rogues, uh, elegant, elegant rogues, um, like in the great Gatsby, so to say. And they, they were just looked at as, as almost uh, urban legends. Well, then after that, they were kind of not looked at in, in the fond, fondness that they were. And Al Capone loved sports. He loved being around athletes, even though he wasn't an athlete himself. But Jack McGurn was an incredible athlete at whatever he tried. So he would take Jack McGurn to these different sporting events. One of them was a Northwestern football game. And slowly they started a, a buzz started to come where they were booing him and booing him and booing him. And Al Capone was not used to that because again, Al Capone was, you know, he was, he gave the people what they wanted. He gave them alcohol. He gave them whatever they wanted, whatever vice vice. And all of a sudden, suddenly he was, he was the anti-hero, not, not the, you know, he, he wasn't the hero anymore. 
And it got worse and worse and worse. And people wanted them to leave the game. But they were saying, you know, the officials at the game said, you know, they, they're, they're paying customers. They're not doing anything. But finally, the booze got so bad that they were forced to leave. And according to legend, Jack McGurn turned, you know, shook his fist at the crowd when they were walking out and all. So it was, it was kind of a, a it was kind of a football story, but um, I, I think, it, I think it was kind of a, an interesting uh, little tidbit that I had to put in that book. How about that? Al Capone, a love hate relationship for the city of Chicago. Speaking about how people really thought about Capone in the day, what better way than to read first-hand accounts from the newspapers of the time. Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the True the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably in sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Newspapers.com, have you ever checked them out before? Uh, Ernie, definitely. I'll tell you, I... I, you, you could even put my comment in about newspapers.com because I'm a member of that. And I'll tell you something that is an incredible, when I, when I wound up getting that, it was, it was like, like, boom. I mean, you know, everything opened up for me. I mean, you could go to any city, get anything you wanted, whether it's, you know, sports, crime, Hollywood, uh, everything that I'm interested in writing about. All of a sudden, you know, boom, you go to the LA Times, you could find out anything you wanted about Hollywood and, 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 and anything in Chicago. It, it was just, it's an incredible tool. And anybody that wants to do any research, whether it's ancestry or writing books or just seeing old events, just, just, just as a hobby and all, I highly would recommend newspapers.com. It is an absolute source, an absolute incredible source. There you go. You heard it from the source again. Just just as a reminder, if you want to get one free week trial, you head to newspapers.com forward slash newspapers. And again, that helps production of this show as well as all the other shows on the network. And now we're going to get into, speaking of like going back in time, newspapers.com. Let's go for another DeLorean question. You ready for this? You got it. This time, though, we're going to take the Madden Cruiser to keep it with the Raiders, but John Madden style, that big old bus. We're going to convert that baby. We're going to take it back in time. All expenses paid trip for, for you and your family. Entire season. You can follow one season and be a part of every single moment of the Raiders from draft through the Super Bowl. Which one are you going to and why? I, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to step away from the Raiders for a minute. Is that okay? Well, I converted this thing. You have the keys and you're back in time and I don't know where you're at. So okay. yeah, you can do whatever you want. I'll tell you what, I'm going to pay for the gas on this one. I'm going to go back somewhere else on this. Uh, this is where Vince Lombardi comes in. I would love to go back to 1956 
with the New York Giants, with Frank Gifford, Charlie Connerly, and you had Jim Lee Howell as, as the head coach. You had Vince Lombardi as offensive coordinator and Tom Landry as defensive coordinator. I would have loved to have played on that team. I would have liked to have been Frank Gifford. You know, <laughs> Frank Gifford in a big city like that. He was the NFL MVP that year. He owned that city. And to me, they, they say two years later that that game, the greatest game ever played, the 58 championship game between the Colts and the Giants, kind of turned football. I believe that the 1956 season did because you had such, you know, again, you had Frank Gifford, who was a handsome, charismatic guy. Uh, he was he was the stud of that team, and you had this incredible defense, and they they were in Yankee State playing in Yankee Stadium. It was just, and I, I truly believe in that that huge metropolis that that is New York City. People just gravitated toward that team, and I, I honestly believe that that was the real birth of the popularity of of professional football. Again. I'm sure I'll get debunked on that by, by some by some experts and all, but uh, I'd be willing to debate them on that. I, I seriously think that. So I would love to say 1956 and to be with Vince Lombardi as he was the offensive coordinator and be Frank Gifford. <laughs> but I want my own name because I want to see my name in the papers. <laughs> there you go. So you're going to kind of cheat a little bit and give me a, a transition into one of the next questions. And you... Going back there real quick, though. Of course, cheating. Of course, che- I don't mean to interrupt you, but of course, cheating. You know, I mean, cheating is highly encouraged if you're the, with the Raiders. Well, you so. have to, yeah. It, like you said, it's encouraged. And in fact, if you're not cheating, then you're not doing it the right way and you're not trying to win. That's so right. we're going to go ahead and let that one slide. But I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and say this real quick before we get into the next question. I, that's one of the best things that I love about sports because there's no right answer. It's always the meaning that that person puts to that play, that game, that season, that whatever it is. So I would say debate all the way. 56 is is the reason why it turned versus 58. You know, maybe the mass media says 58 because that's what they remember. One big championship game versus the 56, like you just described there. So it's perfect. Right. I, I helped out, uh, with the Pro Football Research, Researchers Association, I helped out with a book on the 58 Colts. So I feel, I feel like I'm kind of, you know, cheating on them. And to anybody that's listening, you know, I apologize because <laughs> they're all a great group of guys. But I still feel 1956, 1956 Giants. Well, okay. So we're going to use that, like I said, transition in there. The, you, you mentioned you want to be Frank Gifford. You want to be Lombardi. Um, kind of like a quantum leap style question then. You can, you're boom, you just quantum leap styled into Al Davis's body whenever you want. And there's a decision that he made, but you're going to change it. You're going to make a different decision. What decision would you make? Keep Ken Stabler in 1979. What happened there? I I, I don't know why they released him or what, or whatever happened. They, they felt that he had, uh, his arm strength was, was fading and all. And, you know, maybe they were right. But again, being, being a fan of, uh, apparently it worked out well for, for the Raiders because they won two Super Bowls with Jim Plunkett. And not to take anything away from Jim Plunkett, I think Plunk was an incredible quarterback, a great comeback story. Should be in the Hall of Fame also. And I would I would love to try to promote his his nomination into the Hall of Fame, just like I did Coach Flores. I mean, I think, you know, that, that, that's for a different day, though. Uh, but I, I believe, I, I would say, I would try to keep Snake for maybe one more year. Maybe he could have take him to that to a Super Bowl in 1980 also, just like Plunkett did. Again, we'll never know. And that's the beauty of sports. You know, you can say what you want. 
You could be wrong 99.9% of the time. And I'm sure there's people that are going to be throwing stuff at me for saying that. But uh, I would say I would I would say that. I would say that to keep Snake because of, you know, how much I, I thought of Ken Stabler. Well, yeah, I mean, you had that personal touch to it. And speaking of personal touch, because you were able to be a fan and I don't know, what I, we'll say like you, you, you came, what did you say earlier? Did you say you fell in love with, or did you say that you became obsessed with? We'll just say that you did both with the Raiders back in 72. And then now throughout their to- whole time that you watched them, you can pick one player to bring back with you on that DeLorean to modern day Raiders. And he gets to play with them for the next 10 years. Which player is it? I'd have to go twos. I, I, it, it, it would be, I'd have to, I, I would, I'm going to be, again, I'm going to be selfish. Can I take two? Well, I mean, that's, that's the uh, theme okay, of the show yes, here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me. You just I, win. I, just do it. And then ask for forgiveness. Oh. Or what is it? Ask for forgiveness, not permission. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I want on this one. I'm taking uh, Lyle Alzado and I'm taking John Matuzak with me. and let and, Because they never had a chance to play on that same line with Howie Long. And oh my gosh. Now, I know the Raiders won it in 83 without twos, but I just think those three guys on the line together, gelling. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, it makes you, it makes you cringe to think of being a, being an offensive player running into those guys. That's what I would want to see. Those guys in their prime Lyle. Make everybody choose. cringe. And, but let, let's now let's give them some last words of wisdom and then let's tell us uh, however you want. Maybe just tell everybody about all your books. I get, I got into it at the introduction, but maybe share with them the reason why for the books. Okay, I started off being here in Cleveland and living in Cleveland, a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, when the Browns left town, uh, you know, there was a lot of a lot of stirring, you know, as the Browns were getting close. And I always wanted to try to do a, a project. And my initial project was to try to do a book on Jack McGurn. But when I saw that the Browns were coming back into town, I thought, hey, you know, just send out a couple queries. So I sent out a couple queries about great moments in Cleveland Browns history. They actually, uh, there are a couple publishers that were interested and I chose the one uh, sports publishing. And then I realized that, you know, okay, I sent out the queries, but now I have to write the book. So <laughs> I, I had to come up with all kinds of stuff, but uh, wonderful people. And uh, so that they really launched me on that. And then I went to go work on uh, Chicago assassin. After that, I was a little intimidated because I thought, okay, maybe I just got lucky because the Browns were coming back and all. And it was a completely different genre. And I was able to find some incredible people to help me get different court records and all and the uh, Chicago Tribune to, to find things through there. And I was able to piece together a, a, a book that was pretty well received. And I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that it's at, at uh, Harvard University Library. It's at the uh, FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia, and it's all around the English speaking world. So I'm very, very pleased with that. That, that, book, that book was really a labor of love, something that I've wanted to do for about 20 years before that. After that, I did uh, the Raiders Encyclopedia and then uh, the Lakers Encyclopedia, uh, Dodgers. I think you're seeing a theme here about Los Angeles because I love the city of Los Angeles. And USC, the encyclopedias on those teams. Commemorate, the, the Raiders were to commemorate 50 years, as were the Dodgers and the Lakers, and then 125 years with the uh, USC Trojans. I also have a book about uh, – Los Angeles, the, the early days of Los Angeles football that's at the publisher right now. And uh, hopefully they'll be getting back to me soon as far as after all the editing and all and when it's going to be released. Right now, I don't know when it will be released, but that was a lot of fun. I took it from the beginning, 
beginnings in the early 1920s through the all of the problems that they had with the um, try, trying to get uh, a hold of uh, the LA Coliseum at that time, but USC was kind of blocking them. They didn't want any competition. They had an incredible minor league system out in Los Angeles at that time. So I cover that pretty thoroughly. Uh, I like to believe very comprehensively. And then when the Rams came and then when they, and the book is culminated when they won the 1951 championship and that pretty much solidified the opportunity for the Rams or for, for the, uh, for, for any of the teams, the Raiders to come to Los Angeles, the Lakers, the Dodgers, and you know, the rest on that is history with all the championship hardware that those teams collected. And I'm also doing a book. I, 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 I love the whole Hollywood thing. Again, big surprise, you know, with, with, uh, Los Angeles, my, my love affair with Los Angeles, but I'm doing a book on drive-in movies from the, the later 50s until early 80s. So, you know, the advent of television when television was kind of catching on. So they were trying to get the teenage people to come to become involved with um, going to see the movies. So they had to come up with some of these weird, wacky movies and it just followed through. And then I, I stopped it with the birth of the VCR because that kind of took away a lot of the drive and flair. So, and some of these movies are great. And it's just, it, it allows me to really have a great sense of humor with these movies because you can't take them serious. I'm also doing a couple of uh, projects on my own, on my own label uh, about Marilyn Monroe movies because uh, I'm a huge Marilyn Monroe fan. But, um, and I'm also setting up a book on uh, the 1983 Raiders uh, Championship Diary series. And these are little quick hitters, uh, 50, 60 pages a piece, just basically in a, in a diary form, day by day. And, that, and all thanks to newspapers.com. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, man. It sounds like you're a pretty busy individual there too. And if you could give, yeah, I, okay, I love it. <laughs> let's close this out with, I'm going to let you wherever you want. You know, if you were to get a tattoo on your body that personified your love affair with the Raiders, what would it be? I would have the Raider shield and I'd have 76, 80 and 83 on it with just win baby on the top and commitment to excellence below it. I have one. I have one more thing, though, Ernie. Uh, where you talk about the DeLorean, can I go on one more trip? Okay. Well, hey, I tell you what. You know, you're not asking for permission. You're asking for forgiveness after the fact. But you don't even need forgiveness because you're a Raiders fan. So yeah, I guess you already stole it. Don't even <laughs> ask me. Thank you. I'm taking this. Okay. Now I would like to go back. I'm going to go a different route on this. I'd love to go back and be on the 1927 Murderers Row Yankees with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And I, I don't care if I'd even hit the field. I just want to, I just want to want to hang out with that team and just be part of that and just be dressed up in a uniform. And if I want to get dirty, I'll slide in the dugout like you did when you were a kid, you know, playing little league. So it looked like you played. That's all I want. That Those are my, those are my trips. I will, I will pay for the gas for the DeLorean. I promise. <laughs> Well, I mean, like we said, we can modify it a little bit because I, I think Babe Ruth was known to uh, drink a few brewskis. So I'm sure he's got a couple he can lend you and you can throw it in the Mr. Fusion for us. And with that, any last words of wisdom or anything you want to give to the listener of the show before we leave? I love the Raiders, Raider Nation for life. And just win, baby. Just win, baby. That's all I got to say. Again, I mean, it's cool. Rich can pinpoint a game. In a moment, when he said, you know what? I'm part of Raider Nation. I'm one of those outlaws, and I'm going to take what I need. It kind of reminds me of the SHN Showcase episode with Aaron Harris, where he really didn't get into football until later in his life, but he said he could remember the moment when he really got into it. 
And speaking of moments, I used to have this thing called My Football Moment on this podcast where listeners of the show would send in audio clips of their favorite football moment of all time and we'd play it on the show. So let's do this, but let's give it a twist. You can get on this show by answering one of the following two questions, or both if you wish. Just like this episode's theme, you just gotta take it, ask for forgiveness rather than permission, and, well, Rich isn't even gonna do that himself. But what I want you to do is record yourself answering one of these two questions, or again, both of them. The first question is, what is your favorite football moment of all time? The other, if you could take the keys to my DeLorean and go back in time to any football moment in history, where are you going and why? Maybe even tell me what you're going to do there, who you're going to talk to. It's kind of an open-ended question if you kind of catch my drift here. All you have to do to get the details is head to myfootballmoment.com, and that's going to take you over to the page on the Sports History Network. And again, don't forget about a contest we got going on here. SportsHistoryNetwork.com forward slash contest. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>